morning and welcome to Rising. Happy Thursday. And now our show begins. Brianna, hello. <laughs> hello, Robbie. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> what do we have? Well, Yahoo News' Kevin Cirilli joins us later. We'll get into new developments in the collapse of FTX. Plus, we'll discuss the Biden administration's push for over $30 billion in new aid to Ukraine. But first, Nancy Pelosi is set to announce her future plans today as Republicans consolidate around their House majority. Pelosi must decide whether she'll seek a place in Democratic House leadership. Back in 2018, the Speaker committed to limiting herself to four more years in a leadership position. This year, Pelosi turned 82 years old. Meanwhile, over in the Senate, Mitch McConnell was reelected as minority leader, squarely defeating challenger Rick Scott. Scott's bid for leadership was the first time McConnell has been challenged in 15 years. According to Axios's Elena Treen, at least 10 Senate Republicans voted against McConnell during the conference's secret ballot vote. When asked about adversary Donald Trump's 2024 bid for president, here's what the minority leader had to say. The way I'm going to go into this presidential primary season is to stay out of it. I don't have uh, a dog in that fight. I think it's going to be a highly contested uh, nomination fight with other candidates entering. And it's all going to be quite good for you all to cover. Mm. Slow and steady wins the race, as the turtle knows. That's Mitch McConnell's nickname. <laughs> I'm, I'm aware. I mean, so what do you think that's about? Do you think that that's a little bit of fence-sitting, not wanting to put your thumb on the scale when you don't know what the outcomes are? Is that just good leadership? Or are people reluctant to come out against, or some people at least, reluctant to come out strongly against Donald Trump, despite the fact that the media seems to be on board with the idea that Trump is out and uh, DeSantis is in? Yeah, McConnell has always taken this line, uh, really, except for January 6th mm -hmm. and the ensuing fallout. That was really the first time he had spoken up and said, no, 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 absolutely not, no. And then he took a lot of flack for that. Uh, that that hurt him. I mean, this is, he's facing a leadership challenge for the first time, or did face, he survived it, probably because of that. Yeah. Um, we don't know which senators necessarily voted against him. I saw that Josh Hawley tweeted, I was one of the 10. Mm -hmm. um, we don't know for sure. There's no way to verify, mm -hmm. but presumably he was. Um, but it, it's it's kind of a, I guess that's a kind of virtue signaling in a sense. They, mm -hmm. That's really telling Trump voters that, like, I'm one of you. You know, I, I didn't turn on you. I, I want this guy out, even if they didn't, the party didn't end up actually taking the steps to reject him. Yesterday you were making this interesting distinction between kind of um, being the most right and being conservative, like the, the Trump faction versus the more you know, yeah. you know, whatever, whatever you would want to call the other faction. Right. And it is, it is interesting to see those lines shape and reshape itself because in some ways, you know, there was this really great um, uh, piece that was running, I think, in the New York Times about what Trumpism was as opposed to Donald Trump. And what you've seen is this separation of this idea of what it means from a kind of uh, rhetorical approach and somewhat of a policy approach and what Trumpism is. But it's been separated enough from Donald Trump that you are seeing these different manifestations of people who are able to t pick up his mantle, potentially Ron DeSantis, without mm -hmm. all of the baggage. And we're in this position right now of trying to figure out what parts of the Trump phenomenon were right. actually the ones that were most appealing, and whether or not some of the things that me the media said were his downsides actually were detriments to his uh, success, as opposed to part of his charm. Well, and DeSantis, before being governor, was a member of the House mm -hmm. uh, in Florida and had a had a pretty kind of Tea Party uh, stereotypical for for quite conservative Republicans at the time. It took you know all the opinions you would have expected a Republican from like 2008 to 2014 to take. 
if, if he defeats Trump, if he claims the crown, does he have to do Trump's policies? Or, or, or are there policies that are more natural to him being in that mold that he'll revert to? Or has Trump changed things? And now it's just changed, and those policies will be, will be old-fashioned, will be out of hat. That's what remains to be seen, really. Yeah, well, look, I break some of this down in my radar today because I have some suspicion that uh, Ron DeSantis is a little bit of an untested in mm -hmm. on terms of a national scale figure. Uh, and I do think that sometimes the mainstream media, you know, they they love and they hate Trump. They're, they're in this weird uh, masochistic relationship where they say that Trump needs to stick to the teleprompter. They say that Trump needs to calm down. They say they like the idea that Ron DeSantis is Donald Trump without all the baggage and the unpredictability like a bull in a china shop. But they also criticize Donald Trump for having a boring speech the other night, and everyone seems to want him to dance, baby, dance. I mean, I've said it. I think I've said it before on the show. It's, it's the dark night. It's Batman and Joker. Kill you. What would I do without you? Yeah. That's the exact <laughs> dynamic they have. Well, speaking of the Sunshine State, Governor Ron DeSantis attempted to take the temperature down a notch when he told the press to chill out over reports of a civil war brewing in the GOP. Let's watch that. We, we, just, we just finished this election, okay? People just need to chill out a little bit on some of this stuff. I mean, seriously, we just ran an election. Hmm. Yeah, you know, that's the tact he's going to take. He's going to say, everybody calm down. I, I think that's good advice in, in some sense, the, especially with Civil War rhetoric, which is something that a specific segment of, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know, extremists, I, probably there's some on both sides of that being like, yes, the, let's tear the country apart, let's ride in the streets, et cetera. But, uh, yeah, I mean, look, on one hand, as a leftist, I got to say, I'm jealous of the idea that there could be a challenge to a leadership position. And, and that's just, you know, obviously, this yeah, is the we, first we time. Yeah, we glossed right over Nancy Pelosi. Been. She's sitting pretty. If she wants to be my uh, uh, House Minority Leader, they'll, be, they'll, they'll roll out the red carpet for her. Right, despite her um, making a pledge not yeah. to continue to pursue a leadership Her deputies position. will ritualistically, like, you know, <laughs> so, so that she can step it's, up. It's true. Look, and so, look. I don't. There, I think there is a, a world you can get into where it devolves into something that's ugly and not constructive, and the distinctions that people are making between their policies and who should be leader are not constructive. But that it doesn't actually seem especially ugly on the right. There are clear ideological lines that are being drawn. People are making their voices known. A vote happened. They weren't successful, and we're moving on. And in some ways, the suppression that's happening on the left of any upstart voices is causing there to be a messier situation, kind of a little bit under the skin, like we saw in the case of the CPC letter, where a, a banal letter saying, hey, let's push for peace in Ukraine, becomes a much bigger yep. story because they try to suppress it and because there's so much antagonism for people within your own ranks who dare to have a different opinion from leadership. Yeah. Last thing I'll say on the McConnell front, imagine if Trump, remember McConnell spent money, you know, a, a quarter billion dollars to help Republican Senate candidates get, get, candidates get elected in this cycle and then, you know, millions and millions in previous cycles. So they have some loyalty to him. Ma you know, Blake Masters lost. Um, uh, Dr. Oz lost. Herschel Walker might lose. What if Trump had spent, Trump could have spent hundreds of millions of dollars on those candidates, gotten them through, and then you could have a different, uh, a different leader in the Senate. But Trump doesn't put his money where his mouth is. Yeah. So he only spends his money on himself. So this is the result. Yeah, you can't you can't argue with that. You can't argue with that. Well, um, we'll get into this a little bit more on my radar coming up next. What's on your radar, Brianna? 
Well, Robbie, as everybody knows now, on Tuesday, Donald Trump announced his plan to run for president in 2024 in a lengthy speech at Mar-a-Lago that lacked much of the razzle-dazzle of his original escalator side announcement in 2015. And the consensus seems to be that the 45th president of the United States is off to a bad start, having committed a sin of his own coinage, that is, being low energy. Axios, MSNBC, and Huffington Post all ran headlines describing the speech as low energy, even as his former deputy press secretary agreed, tweeting, this is one of the most low energy, uninspiring speeches I've ever heard from Trump. Even the crowd seems bored, not exactly what you want when announcing a presidential run. The liberal press seems to be going out of its way to cast Trumpism as officially dead, with the New York Times alert reading, Donald Trump announced a 2024 run for president, ignoring GOP warnings that his influence is harming the party. NPR was less subtle, announcing Trump's run with a tweet so slanted that conservatives made defund NPR trend on Twitter all day. Now, conservative press also downplayed the announcement with Trump's hometown conservative daily, the New York Post, simply running a banner on the front page, quote, Florida man makes announcement, page 36. <laughs> I guess New York isn't claiming Trump anymore. Pundits seem to think that Donald Trump will struggle to win a Republican primary race, especially if he goes up against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has been distinguishing himself as Trump's, well, apprentice. <laughs> But I've observed some inconsistency here in the pundit's calls. All throughout 2020, commonly accepted pundit logic was that if Donald Trump stuck to the teleprompter and avoided some of his more inflammatory takes, he could defeat Joe Biden. An August 2020 New York Times headline asked, is teleprompter Trump effective? The author argued that it was his public persona, not his policies, that put off traditional Republican and independent voters. To have a shot at winning, he simply needed to reel in his more bombastic theatrical side. Now, however, the press seems to be damning him for doing exactly what it previously identified as his best strategy. On Tuesday night, Donald Trump largely stayed away from the culture wars, probably a good move given that anti-trans laws, threats to ban abortion nationally, and election denialism didn't play well in last week's congressional battles, even if the culture wars did win hearts and minds in many local school board races. Instead, Trump touched on topics that really resonated with voters in 2016, but which the mainstream media never paid much attention to or credited for his success. For example, he backed a more traditionally left approach to trade that criticized neoliberal policies like NAFTA that were pushed by both corporate parties and articulated a protectionist American first approach that sees endless wars, for example, as coming at a direct cost to the well-being of Americans at home. And yet, despite toning down his rhetoric and playing the hits, both right and left seem to have decided that Trump is on the outs. Now, the polls say something different. A morning consult poll from this week put Trump ahead of DeSantis, 47 to 33. And while DeSantis has been gaining in these polls, he also has yet to weather the national spotlight for any prolonged period of time, the way Trump has. Remember, there was a time early in 2019 when even Kamala Harris's poll numbers and fundraising seemed to suggest she was a good idea. And we all know what happened once we got to know her a little better. I couldn't resist. Lover or hater, you, you gotta appreciate a good Kamala moment. <laughs> but look, my point here is this. 
pundits have gotten this Trump thing wrong before. And personally, I'm wary of narratives that paint a Trump failure as inevitable. My former colleague at Current Affairs magazine, Nathan Robinson, was one of the few to not only predict a Trump win, but to understand his strengths. He pointed out that in a Trump-Hillary matchup, Trump could accurately attack her from both the left and the right. He wrote, as a candidate who thundered against the Iraq war at the Republican debate, he can taunt Clinton over her support for it. He will paint her as a member of the corrupt political establishment and will even offer proof. Well, I know you can buy politicians because I bought Senator Clinton. I gave her money. She came to my wedding. Now, as a former president, Trump will have a harder time positioning himself as an outsider this time around. Certainly, he wasted no time as president, filling his cabinet with Wall Street picks and selling out Main Street as soon as he was elected. But he's arguably still more of a Washington outsider than Ron DeSantis, who was first elected to Congress in 2012. And the Republican establishment's choice to distance itself from Trump certainly gives the former president cause to credibly argue that he has been rejected by the swamp. In 2016, Trump said he knew Hillary was for sale because he had bought her. And now Trump is dabbling in a similar claim about DeSantis, claiming credit for his very political existence. Before midterms, Trump said DeSantis, quote, was not going to be a, was not going to be even a factor in the race until Trump got him the nomination. He ran and he wasn't supposed to be able to win, Trump said. I did two rallies. We had 52,000 people at each one and he won. And Trump's not entirely wrong about his continued influence in the Republican Party. Claims of Trump having lost his touch in the endorsement process are somewhat overstated. Some of his candidates lost big and important Senate and gubernatorial battles, that is true. But his batting average overall isn't that bad. 232 wins and 22 losses is pretty good, as he noted in his announcement speech, even if it pales in comparison to his 98% success rate in the primaries. All the articles that argue that Trump candidates performed poorly tend to make their case by only looking at competitive races or observing uh, uh, putting their thumb on the scale somewhat, um, that in this niche category of races, he did poorly. Even if you think Trump's endorsement record is damning, I'm not sure the outcome of midterms supports a claim that Trump has totally bad instincts. He was right, after all, to have exercised restraint post Dobbs, recognizing that the decision overturning Roe was a dog catches car situation that could threaten Republican prospects. And again, he chose not to mention abortion in his announcement speech. Compare Trump's restraint to DeSantis's, who in June, post Dobbs, tweeted that, quote, the prayers of millions upon millions of Americans had been answered by the ruling. Now, all of this isn't to say that I think Trump will win again, but I am concerned that some of the coverage takes the tone of wish casting rather than reality. Both Republicans and Democrats are desperate to put Trump in the rearview mirror, but acting like his failure is a fait accompli is exactly what got him elected in the first place. The end of Nathan Robinson's prescient 2016 article contains a warning. Donald Trump is one of the most formidable opponents in the history of American politics. He is sharp, shameless, and likable. If he is going to be the nominee, Democrats need to think very seriously about how to defeat him. And if they don't, he will be president of the United States, Nathan wrote. DeSantis differs so much from all the candidates in the 2016 Republican primary that succumbed to Trump's appeal. Will he become Ron DeSanctimonious? Or has he learned something from watching Trump these past six years? Has he learned to avoid direct confrontation with the Don? 
Is teleprompter Trump poised to be more successful than the off-the-cuff candidate that ensorcelled the American media? Or will Americans miss the carnival Trump that used, sorry, the carnival that Trump used to put on? Can he do it again without Twitter and without the media hanging on his every word? Only time will tell. But I, for one, am simply not jumping to any conclusions. Look, that's good advice. Uh, fair enough. I, I absolutely think people who are putting all their eggs in the DeSantis basket um, got to you know, wait for that omelet to be ready or something. I don't know. Remember uh, Jeb? Yeah, let's. Remember Jeb exclamation point? I mean, that seems like a sure thing. 100%. The reason I think it's going to be slightly different. Um, well, look, it, it will be a Jeb situation again if there are 20 candidates. If all the Republicans get in, if you have everybody and their uncles and aunts and grandmothers running, yes, then Trump's 34% hold on the Republican primary base, uh, if that's a plurality of the, of the voters, he wins. But I think there's reason to think that might not happen. Uh, the conservative media was divided among Marco Jeb, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, um, Carly Fiorina, um, other, you know, the there were like 8,000 of, of them. It yeah. was divided. It's going to be united in favor of DeSantis this time. Yeah. And that will help. Now, it's still going to be a hard fight. You're right. But Trump is weaker. He, he was kind of an, he, it was an exciting and interesting and unknown obsession back then. There's mm -hmm. still the obsession part is still there, but it's a little bit of of, of uh, old news. I don't like Trump can't improve. Trump can't can't become more popular. Uh, he can't. He's not going to. I, I don't believe that he's going to win like moderates or independents or Dem people who didn't vote for him the last two times are not going to vote for. Could him you this say time. the same thing about Joe Biden, so. who also ran for president two times previously, that he wasn't going to get any more popular? Joe, but, but he did. He did. Did he, get, did he get more popular? Or did the situation change such that he suddenly became the best option for Democrats? Allegedly, obviously, I don't. Biden know. is <laughs> sneakily popular in ways that are hard for the media to understand, um, hard for ideological people, I think, to understand. He is sneakily popular, and the same cannot be said. I mean, in the head-to-head -head match, he won. But the, the question is, in this quasi-head-to-head -head match, he won again. But, but the question is, what made the difference for Biden, who wasn't mm. able to run uh, when the last two times he ran for president? who chose not to enter the fray into 2016, bending the knee to popular opinion, which was that it was Clinton's turn, but managed to pull it out of the gate in, 2000, in a crowded, yeah. by the way, primary in 2019. Name recognition just helps so much. By then, he was the sitting, or he was the former vice president. He was well-known to everyone. And the name recognition thing, which helped Trump so much in the 2016 primaries, is now, he, again, he's at the seal. He can't get more well-known. I don't know about DeSantis that. DeSantis can get well, more well-known. It's still, like, we're still in the phase where the only people who know who Ron DeSantis is are people who live in Florida and people who yeah. follow politics pretty closely. DeSantis is not known broadly yeah, that's to audiences. True, but that and can so break, he has room to... But that can break, sure, break either way. But he has room to improve among people just from virtue of them learning who he is. Well, and let me Donald ask Trump you this. can't do that. You and I have, you and I have watched Ron DeSantis talk... Yeah more than the average non-Floridian. How do you see that head-to-head -head matchup going with Donald Trump? Are you impressed by him as an interlocutor? Aren't you the one always trying to convince me that these debates don't matter? Well, not debates, but there's so much more than yeah. debates, especially when you're dealing with someone like Donald Trump that turns every uh, horizontal service into a stage. Yeah. You know, he, he can get in front of a crowd, speak off the cuff, 
seem very humane and approachable. And, and I think that's a similar talent that Joe Biden has, frankly. I haven't seen that demonstrated from Ron DeSantis. Maybe I haven't looked at enough Ron DeSantis mm-hmm. um, media appearances. But I, I, I just feel like it's such an unknown. It's such an unknown. And there does seem to be something almost coordinated and um, like wish fulfillment about the entire media establishment on both sides of the aisle. You're not wrong. Posturing this like, oh, Trump's, Trump's a done deal. And DeSantis, not just that Trump's a done deal, because I might even believe that aspect of it, but that DeSantis is necessarily hmm. poised to win the hearts and minds of Republicans. I'm not saying you're wrong. I think they will. I've said, I've said it a million times now. I think they will go at it. I think it will be a hard-fought battle that DeSantis, unlike any of the people last time around, that DeSantis is, cap- is certainly capable of winning. I do not think it is a foregone conclusion that he yeah. will win. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll have more rising for you right after this. President Zelensky is insisting that the deadly missile strike that hit a Polish village on Tuesday was not Ukrainian. In a televised address, Zelensky said, quote, I have no doubt that it was not our missile or our missile strike. I want us to be fair. And if it was the use of our air defense, then I want that evidence. Ukraine correspondent for the Financial Times, Christopher Miller, tweeted that he spoke with a NATO country diplomat who hit out against Zelensky's claims, saying, this is getting ridiculous. The Ukrainians are destroying confidence in them. Nobody is blaming Ukraine, and they are openly lying. This is more destructive than the missile. It's a pretty strong statement, but I understand where he's coming from there. Um, Yeah, there is no real doubt, as far as I can tell, that the missile was Ukrainian. As we discussed yesterday, I understand the argument that the Polish authorities have said they they do not blame Ukraine in a moral sense because Ukraine is defending itself in the context of this war that Russia initiated. So they are not, you know, they were not condemning Ukraine. So to to go this unnecessary step, wholly unnecessary, and say, well, the missile wasn't even Ukrainian, that's obviously that's a lie, and political officials should not lie. Especially when the implications of a lie like that are so extreme. What we're talking about now is engaging a NATO country, which is why you're probably seeing this NATO official talking off the record saying, this is extremely, this is negligent. You're trying to literally instigate World War III, and I understand from a political perspective why you would want the whole of the Western world at your back, Ukraine, but you can't fudge the facts in order to manifest this outcome, which frankly is likely to lead to nuclear war and a civilizational level disaster. Yeah, which is what happens when conflicts are allowed to just keep going on without massive pressure being put to end them. Mistakes begin to pile up, and then then those mistakes could beget future conflicts. You know, what if I mean, what are the people in that village who are the people who were killed? You know, then I I don't know exactly where this village is, but now there'll be anger toward whoever, and then, so that will be that. You know, it's not going to beget some war, but the, the, in, medieval, in medieval history, that's how it happened, right? Those people remember, and then their descendants want to take vengeance, and then you have wars and blood feuds, etc., that last forever. And so the, yeah. the risk of having some reason for future conflict. Yeah, it, 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 it increases as this goes on. It's irresponsible, but I do think that the silver lining here is at least we're seeing some pushback now from yes. senior officials. So far, we've come from the hagiography of Zelensky over the summer where he was doing you know, Vogue magazine spreads. And do you remember we covered it here on the show? These kind of wind, yeah. wind-blown faux military photo shoots with his wife. Um you know, finally, it seems the dam has started to break and we're able to have an honest conversation about what's going mm-hmm. on in the region. Yeah, and, and I've always said, I, I, I hold our officials account, like, 
Zelensky is the president of a nation that is being invaded and whatever. He's going to do what he's going to do. He's going to say what he's going to say from the standpoint of leading this defense. Mm. We don't have much control over that, just like we don't have much control over what Vladimir Putin does. But we have control over how our money is spent. Right. And if our money is being given to them, it can come with strings. We have control over what our State Department tells Zelensky, what it says right. to Putin. That's what we have control over, and that is where our responsibility to be responsible lies. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, here at home, U.S. support for Zelensky seems stronger than ever in some sense. Here's Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin saying that no matter who's responsible for the missile attacks, ultimately it's Russia's fault. And whatever the final conclusions may be, the world knows that Russia bears ultimate responsibility for this incident. Russia launched another barrage of missiles against Ukraine, specifically intended to target Ukraine's civilian infrastructure. This tragic and troubling incident is yet another reminder of the recklessness of Russia's war of choice. The Biden administration is also continuing to help fund Ukraine in its war with Russia, with the White House putting forth a new $30 billion aid proposal just this week. The U.S. has funneled just over $91 billion in aid to Ukraine since the war began. That's double the average of what we spent per year in the Afghanistan war. Yeah, I think it's very important to grapple with just how much money we're giving them. We are giving them tons and tons of money. That's a pretty staggering statistic. Um, it's, it's much more than yeah. Russia's uh, total military budget. Um, the price tag for canceling all medical debt back in 2019, mm -hmm. sorry, all of my statistics are campaign aged, uh, was $81 billion. So mm -hmm. consider how that money could be spent uh, at, uh, at home rather than abroad. And, I, and I, I always say, I know there's some debate over this, you might have some debate over this, but government spending, uh, so many economists think, contributes to inflation. There's some government spending going on there. And then obviously the, the effects of the war are contributing to higher prices for food and energy which then, then themselves can have an inflationary impact indirectly. So we, we, are, we are paying for this in, in more senses than one. And, uh, and we, <laughs> the American people, I, I don't know how they feel about it exactly. I think they feel that Ukraine is the victim and, and should be defended and that this is wrong and that Vladimir Putin is a, a very evil and authoritarian tyrant and autocrat. That's certainly how I feel about it. But um, how much more suffering should be inflicted here at home without, uh, yeah, are, are we saying, well, here's the limit. Here's the last day you're going to get a check from us. No, apparently we're not saying yeah, that. And look, it's worth noting. I'm sorry. What a country we live in where Lloyd Austin gets to be Secretary of Defense and make statements that are clearly pushing toward continued um, investment in military investment. As a former Raytheon employee, mm -hmm. board member, someone who whose conflict of interest seems so almost so apparent it feels cliche to even mention it. But in the context of our media cycle, there's no pushback against the idea of the revolving door. There's no interrogation about the interests that are aligning here. Um, there's no interrogation of the fact that we ha now have a deficiency in our own um, miss missile cache and our own ability to defend ourselves because of that's the sheer volume of weaponry that's been sent to Ukraine. There's no discussion of where these weapons are going. There was that CBS report about 30% of the weapons not being tracked. And then CBS got so much pressure, they pulled down that report. Hmm. And of course, there's the ongoing conversation about how much influence there is with these Nazi-aligned elements in Ukraine and the Azov Battalion. So I know that some folks feel like that stuff is overstated, but 
when you have incidences happening, like what just happened earlier this week with CNN, where they rolled some B footage in the background of some Ukrainian soldiers, and one of them gave the Heil salute, and they had to scramble and pull that down and make their apology. So this keeps happening over and over again. John Stewart awarded a medal to someone who just turned out to be to have Nazi right. tattoos. Especially because there's the media is a hair trigger for any whiff or hint of right-wing, extreme, right-wing extremism that they could plausibly portray as Nazi-related in some way, even though the, you know, the, the threat of, of extremist groups in this country is very, 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 very small. You wouldn't get that uh, impression from the often very kind of apocalyptic and dramatic, melodramatic coverage of it. But here we have, and, and fine, you know, fine, make the argument that, well, it's necessary make, to, yeah, make to ally argument. with Nazis, yeah. just as it was necessary to ally with, with uh, the Soviets or whatever, whatever the case would be, that war creates bad allies, fine. But they're, they won't, they're not admitting that. They exactly. want to pretend that that's not the reality. Exactly. And, they, and there's so much, you're right, that there's so much lack of curiosity in the mainstream media about who could be pushing for war because they have financial incentive, because of uh, defense contractor connections, just as there was. It's very similar to the lack of interest in pushing back on the revolving door between major pharmaceutical companies yeah. and the government, yeah. and this to the extent that uh, that certain COVID-related um, therapeutics and vaccines are going to be, you know, not just speedily approved, but mandated, mandated in various mm. places based on the input of people who financially profit sure. from their position from doing that. For sure, for sure. It's very concerning. Well. We talk about it. We talk about it. (laughs) More rising right after this. Stay with us. In a rare show of bipartisanship, 12 Republicans joined Democrats on Wednesday to pass the Respect for Marriage Act, taking same-sex marriage one step closer to receiving the ultimate federal protection, codification into law. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer hailed the bill's passage at the leadership press conference. Let's watch. I know passing the Respect for Marriage Act is as personal as it gets for many senators and their staffs, myself included. My daughter and her wife are actually expecting a little baby uh, in February. And um, so it matters a lot to so many of us uh, to get this done. Democrats are racing to pass major agenda items while they hold majorities in both chambers. And if passed, the Respect for Marriage law would require the federal government to recognize same-sex marriages, overturning the Clinton-era Defense of Marriage Act, which blocked same-sex couples whose marriages were recognized by their home states from receiving the many benefits that other married couples receive. Minority Leader Mitch McConnell was among the 37 Republicans who voted against the bill, despite the fact that most Americans do, in fact, support it. Pew Research recently found that support for same-sex marriage nearly doubled since the Defense of Marriage Act was passed in 2004. The Senate bill must now clear the House before the president can sign it into law. So there was a number of Republicans who voted for it, um, including Susan Collins, Rob Portman, Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, um, some others. Um, you know, probably a, a lot of the ones people would have expected to, with maybe a few surprises. Um, this is uh, so. This has basically come about because of the dissents, the dissent that Clarence Thomas had in a recent Supreme Court decision, which suggested that you know if he were, if Clarence Thomas ruled the world, he would think that the um, uh, what is a, Ber- a Burgerfell decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, All of the privacy cases. Right. This was in Dobbs, so yes. he implied that he doesn't think that the privacy justification um, was good for abortion or another a number right. of other cases, including same-sex marriage, um, potentially interracial marriage, and the whereas like. the 
whereas the the majority in Dobbs, it was very clear that they were not they did not want to revisit um, the gay marriage issue. So it, it's an open question how much of gay marriage is actually imperiled. I would say not very much, but I support it, obviously. I mean, how um, do so you really think fine. that the, the 12 people who crossed the aisle to vote for this, the 12 Republicans, were thinking about this in those kinds of defensive terms? Like, it's good for Republicans. The way that Trump has said that, you know, Dobbs is going to hurt us on the back end, that this is a, a defensive posture saying, OK, let's contain the fallout from Dobbs so we don't have to keep running on Probably, I, I think most of them probably also just support gay marriage, um, which is, you know, well in keeping with the vast majority of the population does and a significant number of Republicans. But that's the thing. And, it, that, it, the the yeah. majority of the population also supports, and I know it depends on how you phrase it, but maintaining Roe, like mm -hmm. the, the right to choose, even if they don't personally choose I don't think, for um, even among social conservatives, my, my understanding from having conversations with them back when, even back when gay marriage wasn't quite as popular, was that abortion was much more um, important to them. I mean, I mean, if you think about it from a social conservative standpoint, if you think that abortion is murder, whereas gay marriage is just kind of a lifestyle you don't approve of, well, it's, it's obviously a more important thing. They consider it to be thing. a sin. The, the problem with murder is that it's a sin. The problem with gay, gay marriage in their eyes is that it's a sin. I, I'm not trying to argue regressively. I'm, just, I'm try, just trying to figure this out because either it is that these 12 people are making a strategic decision, these 12 people are genuinely for gay marriage like the most of the country, but if so, isn't there a question to be a, a conversation to be had about why it was only twelve? What do you mean? It's a, if we're saying that they're doing this because it's popular and yeah. everyone's basically over it. I mean, this isn't a I, I should note that some be. of the the reasons that uh, some people are voting against it um, are concerns that I, I think are not unfounded necessarily about how this might impact religious freedom. You could think that gay marriage oh. is good and should, well, you could think that it should just be administered at the state level, that states should be, like, in in my state I would vote for gay marriage, but I'm not sure the federal government should tell the state it has to, et cetera, et cetera, and so on and so but forth. It could be again, a federalism that's, issue. That's what's so interesting to me, that there does seem to be this tension between the ideological positions that are taken with respect to abortion and mm -hmm. feeling like if you're going to claim that you're not saying that you want to dictate other people's ideological beliefs about something like the right to choose, but you simply think it should be a state's rights issue. Mm -hmm. What is the distinction you're making there between something like abortion and something like gay marriage? If it's not an ideological... Well, I don't think that distinction is being made at all. I think that's what, I mean, that's what many so, social conservatives have said for a long time. Abortion and gay marriage should be left right, up to but the this, states. This is an inconsistency that we're seeing here in this kind of a split where we're seeing gay marriage treated very differently. And it does seem to be largely because public opinion has swung so widely in favor of gay marriage that you seem absurd at this point to not be supportive of it. Abortion, I'm, the reason I'm bringing this up is that I wonder if abortion is heading in this direction, especially post-Dobbs, because they, they poked the bear, they tried to see what would happen, they, they mm -hmm. dog chase car actually won their victory and saw this enormous electoral consequence last week. I wonder if the next time you see votes coming down the pike like this about abortion rights, you do see more I mean, aisle crossing. There's also a difference in the part of the issue here is, is recognizing states recognizing what is in a sense a contract, a marriage contract in another state gets into uh, an area where you could argue the federal government has more uh, right to kind of regulate that, that, that you know, Ohio has to recognize contracts based in Texas or whatever, the marriage 
like that's the interstate commerce being regulated by the federal government. That there's a reason for the federal government to intrude there and say no, this is the way it has to be. And not that national not care, healthcare systems, or I mean, there are these Republicans, some of these states that were trying to criminalize people leaving their state to get an abortion in another state, which is going to implicate the commerce clause in similar ways. I'm not, I'm not trying yeah. to. You I'm, know, just, take I'm giving, a I'm just giving you the here. argument that I hear in Republican yeah. circles for why you might. It's just vote against look, this, even if you support gay marriage, or why? Or obviously, you would vote against it if you don't support gay marriage. But why? Yeah. Some people think it was not the right thing for the, or that's the reason they're giving. They don't think it was the right thing for the federal government necessarily to intrude, which is something that appeals to me often because I don't like the federal government very much. I don't like state governments <laughs> that much either. But <laughs> well, look, this this is an unequivocally, I think, good news story for the left, and it is nice occasionally to see this kind of bipartisan support for things that should be no-brainers. It just begs the question a little bit, if polls are so overwhelmingly in favor of any number of other things, including non-social issues like raising the minimum wage, which again was popular in many red states on various ballots uh, last week during midterms, then why is it that we can't have this kind of aisle crossing and other kinds of I mean, of I do know. I'll, I'll take the win. I, I do know. I know lots of people who are who are pro-life and pro-gay marriage. Uh, like that would seem, mm -hmm. uh, among people who are pro-life and live in DC in Republican circles, most of them do support gay marriage probably. So, what do you so think it's, it's gonna... not, this is not a, this is a common opinion to have. What do you think is gonna happen when this gets uh, to the Republican-led House? Hmm? Oh, well, they're gonna vote against it. <laughs> you think so? You think that there are gonna be 12 Republicans in the Senate that cross to pass this? Oh, well, it passed be because find... enough Republicans. Yeah. Um, well, didn't they already, did they already have the vote? No, the I, I think they have not. I thought, okay, I thought they already had the vote. Yeah. Um, yeah. There will be more opposition to it in the House, certainly. All right. There, there will be more votes against it. Well, we'll keep following this story, see what happens, and we'll have more Rising for you coming up next. Investors have filed a class action lawsuit against disgraced FTX CEO Bankman Freed. A number of celebrities who promoted the crypto platform, like Tom Brady, Steph Curry, Shaquille O'Neal, and Larry David, are involved in the legal action. The lawsuit claims FTX was a Ponzi scheme that targeted unsophisticated investors through celebrity endorsements. This comes a week after news broke that the balance sheet of Alameda, Alameda a crypto hedge fund owned by Bankman Freed, held billions of dollars worth of FTX's cryptocurrency and was being used as a collateral for loans. A few hours after filing for bankruptcy, the company announced that hundreds of millions of dollars disappeared. We also learned that Bankman Freed was working with Congress on crypto regulation. I talked about this in my radar earlier this week. Congress had been looking recently at a specific crypto regulation called the Digital Commodities Consumer Protection Act. It was introduced in the Senate in August, passed the Senate's Banking Committee in September. That regulation was being propelled by Sam Bankman-Fried. According to Fortune, the whole thing was spearheaded by Sam and FTX. So let's be clear, a fraudster who deceived crypto users, investors, employees, and vendors to the tune of billions of dollars was the guy writing Congress's crypto rules. In Twitter, messages between Bankman-Fried and Vox reporter Kelsey Piper, the former CEO said this. 
the collaboration was just PR and that regulators make everything worse. Here to unpack all of this and more <laughs> is Yahoo Finance contributor Kevin Cirilli. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks. It's great to be back. I used to work at the Hill. Oh, wonderful. Yes, yeah, so it's like a homecoming. Homecoming. You know? <laughs> well, we're so happy to have you here because this is a complicated story that we're very yeah. interested in. We're fascinated in. It's, this guy seems a little unhinged, but maybe he's just unhinged after losing billions and billions of dollars. I don't know how you could be mentally stable after this. But. How do you lose $1 billion? I mean, how, how does $1 billion go missing? I yeah. mean, that's the biggest question for, for regulators. But it's actually, it's a complex topic, but it's pretty simple. When you go to the bank, right, you know that your money is backed by FDIC. You know you have a guarantee from your bank that there is a partnership with the government, that that money is legitimate. Here's the thing. Cryptocurrency has only been around for a couple of years now, but it is completely unregulated. And that's the biggest issue here. You know, just before coming on air, there were some new statements put out by the House Financial Services Committee, mm. led, of course, by now outgoing uh, Chairwoman Maxine Waters, a prominent progressive from California, and the ranking member who's soon to be the chairman, Patrick McHenry, a conservative from North Carolina. And candidly, there's a lot of alignment here that something has to be done mm -hmm. because this has gone unregulated for quite some time. But there's a turf war. Mm. There's a turf war amongst the regulators. But isn't he Congress, the FTC, you've got state regulators and... Folks like Sam have been capitalizing off of that disalignment. But he's going to face prosecution, yeah. all sorts of legal jeopardy, even just under existing fraud laws. Am I yes, absolutely. Yeah, and, and they're going to drag him in to testify, and, and there's yeah. going to be hearing after hearing. And we've seen this with tech, to your point, with Robinhood, for example. We've seen this with big tech CEOs. But the lack of trust in the cryptocurrency field right now is really something that, that candidly is going to be at the forefront for shaping regulators that we haven't seen since the credit card crisis uh, several decades yeah. ago. Well, Kevin, let me ask you this. Yeah. You asked, how can someone lose a billion dollars? My question is, how can someone get a billion dollars when it's an industry that is so unregulated? This is not an unknown quantity. Why are so many people willing to invest money in, in these kind of companies, in, in crypto? And what is the relationship between that willingness to invest and some of these celebrities who are now on the hook. Well, not just celebrities, lawmakers, and we'll get there in a second. But but to answer your question directly, look, I think that it's it's uh, it's not fair for anyone to to blame the consumer or to blame the American when you have prominent prominent C-suite level executives like this gentleman, as well as prominent celebrities who are leveraging their celebrity in order to build trust with the consumer. Mm. And so it really isn't their fault. And so I think when you have, an, I think you're going to hear from Senator Elizabeth Warren on this. Mm -hmm. We already somewhat have, but of course, as members of the Senate Banking Committee, the counterparts, the HFSC and the Senate, they're going to be looking at this. But in addition to that, this is a regulatory unknown. You mentioned celebrities. Yeah, it makes the story a lot easier to click on and it makes the story a lot easier to follow. But out in Hollywood, I can tell you they're not laughing mm. because now all of these celebrities who have massive followings online, who have signed up for these lucrative, lucrative business deals and offerings, they're going to be looked at. It's not just an Instagram post. It's not just a tweet. It's an endorsement. Mm -hmm. Meme stocks, right? And when I when I uh, cover Wall Street and whatnot, we hear a lot about that. When you're using a social media platform, whether it's Instagram, whether it's Twitter, to integrate the rise and the fall of 
crypto, or dare I say even stock prices, suddenly we're in a whole mm-hmm. new terrain. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just so, like celebrities in terms of like actors and actresses. Like Bill Clinton, oh, yeah. um, Tony Blair were at this conference he put on as political figures. He was paying for influence um, in, in policymaking circles as well. And this is what they do, right? I yeah. mean, I mean, when you have the significant donations to, to what was once described as a wonder kid of, of, of cryptocurrency, I mean, and, and he's wooing them and whatnot. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's just fascinating to see how quickly something can go from, you know, being the, just a couple of months ago, right. the future to the quickly the, the, the front man, so to speak, of this. And, and look, uh, the final point that I would note here is that it, even for lawmakers, when there's a new and emerging financial technology, I think this is going to give a lot of pause mm-hmm. uh, for folks uh, on this. Yeah, it's given it's given big. Uh, 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 what's her name with the Thanos? Big Thanos vibes here. Theranos. <laughs> Theranos. Theranos. No, Theranos, Theranos is something else. <laughs> Can I just quickly? Yeah. Gary Gensler and Patrick McKendry are the two individuals who I think folks should be paying attention to. Gary Gensler, of course, the regulator of the Biden administration, he's under some scrutiny from the right for not doing enough. And Patrick McHenry, who now, as he gets that gavel in the next Congress, uh, is really going to be driving a lot of this policy. So mm. those are the two I've got my eye on. All right. Well, in in some more DMs with Bankman Freed, when asked where the money mysteriously went following FTX's bankruptcy filing, the FTX founder said hack either an ex-employee or malware or an ex-employee's computer. But he said a lot of things in uh, in these DMs. I mean, he was it was incredible that he was saying anything. I mean, if any lawyer would would say, "Do not talk." Never tweet. Um, Never email. Again, I, I suspect he he, mu- he must be in the midst of like some kind of psychological episode to have gone through this, um, and maybe a psychopath in general to have lied to people um, to this extent. So, uh, so do we know where? So he's in the Bahamas. Do we know? Yeah, if they've he, frozen like, his assets. They've frozen his assets. I, I've heard rumors that he's going to be arrested. Or that looking at him right now is he's going to have on? to testify yeah i think i think there's no question and and even more from when you have and i think a, a lot of folks in the financial regulatory community pay a lot of attention to new york state and new york city uh just given that wall street is is in their jurisdiction the crypto laws that are in on wall street uh are perhaps some would argue in the financial services community a little bit further along than some of the regulations that Congress has enacted. I think as we're looking at now the the final tally of Republicans and Democrats, I actually think that there's more of a chance for cohesive consensus building on more uh, in the weeds issues like cryptocurrency. Uh, and this is going to be a key area where I think folks are going to be incentivized to, to, to compromise uh, and work together just because this is completely, completely unregulated. Um, and I think even Republicans and who typically advocate for fewer regulations, I think when, when folks are being... Uh, uh, taken advantage of like this. Uh, it, but I guess how are they being look. taken advantage of? They put money based on Tom Brady's endorsement into a, <laughs> a con. Well, they lost their money. Too bad. Like, why do I care? Why should anyone care or pay for that? Like, if you throw away your money on some stupid celebrity endorsed gamble, that's on you. I don't think the government Rob, should get in the way of that. Robbie going in for big, big con men. Anybody with uh, the no, we'll put the common in. Listen, I don't like the Patriots as much as anybody. Or you know, and listen. I mean, but I mean, and given his. Chapter two. Don't be career, a moron. You know, but but to 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 that point though, again, it comes back to when you invest money, when when, you, when an individual invests money in the stock market, right? Mm-hmm. They have trust in the market, in the exchange, that there is a system 
that they that that these folks will be beholden to. So when the when the market goes up and the market goes down or whatnot, there's rules of the road. I think the question now, to your point, is 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 crypto is the industry is this going to be more developed uh, like what we've seen in the past on Wall Street or is it going to be a casino yeah, in Vegas? Th- look- We'll see what happens in these legal cases, but they're going to have to allege some kind of material misrepresentations from these people so yeah. that they knew what they were advertising wasn't actually legitimate. And that's what I suspect a lot of these people will go down on. But before uh, we wrap, I just wanted to ask you about the political dimension yeah. of this, because you mentioned that there's probably going to be some bipartisan appetite for for sh- like shutting some of this kind of uh, regulating this, yeah. this industry. How much of that has to do with the fact that Sam Bakeman fried was such a prolific Democratic Party donor? I mean, Brie, you would know better than me, right? I mean, uh, but listen, I, <laughs> I don't think it helps them. Yeah. I'm just going to come out and say it. Yeah. I think Republicans who typically, even you would know, I mean, I think Republicans who are typically a little more wary of, of overregulation, when you've got a gentleman who, quite honestly, was doing a lot of wheeling and dealing on the left, I don't think it helps him. Yeah. And I think you're going to hear that. I think you're going to hear a lot of the, the targeted questioning of him when he eventually has to testify, coming from Republicans, well, you know, you, you gave all this money and you were taking advantage of consumers. I think that's going to be the, that could be the angle based on the conversations I'm having. Mm. He has a very interesting ideology, effective altruism, that is his kind of view of, of how people should do good in the world. It's a very specific philosophy that I think we should talk about in yeah. greater detail. I might do a radar on that um, sure. next week. Kevin, thank you so much for joining it's us great today. to be here. And welcome back to the Hill. <laughs> thank you. And congrats on everything. I'm, a, I'm an avid watcher, so congrats. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. you guys are killing it. Seriously. Thank you. Well, we'll have more Rising right after this. Stay with us. Now more than ever, we're short of workers. Uh, we have a population that is not reproducing it on its own with the same level that it used to. The only way we're going to have a great future in America is if we welcome and embrace immigrants, the dreamers, and all of them, because our ultimate goal is to help the dreamers but get a path to citizenship for all 11 million or however many undocumented there are here. That was Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer speaking to reporters outside the Capitol yesterday. Schumer's call for a path to citizenship for the some 11 million undocumented immigrants living in the U.S., comes just after a U.S. district court blocked the Title 42 rule used by Presidents Trump and Biden to expel asylum seekers at the Mexican border due to the COVID public health emergency. The Biden administration has five weeks to halt use of the order. Mm. Well, it should end because... uh... The pandemic is over. Yeah, what's no we- more pandemic authority for governments. This no is, more. This is one of those funny over. things where the politics that you expect mm-hmm. sort of don't align. So the people who tended to be more oppositional to the COVID era of restrictions and policies also tend to be less more hostile to immigration policies right. that allow people in. And so Title 42 was a rule that basically allowed immigrants to be quickly uh, returned to their countries on the basis that there was an ongoing pandemic and they were trying to keep them from but it was just it made absolutely no sense in this context because covid was already in the country i mean you can understand in some theoretical universe where you know we have fortress america we've locked down the country 
and there's some contagion, and we can't, we have to expel people from other or people who've snuck in or something because they might be turning into zombies, like some dystopian sci-fi universe. Fine, that's not the one we live in. COVID is here already. It spread. It has nothing to do with immigrants. They're not spreading it any more than anyone else is spreading it. So there was just no. I, this would be like the student loan thing, like the like so many other things. I would say are being the pandemic authority makes no sense in this context. But so what's funny is that when Trump was in office and he was doing this, liberals acted like it was a horrific policy, that he was undermining legitimate asylum claims, that he was being deeply inhumane. And there was a lot of chatter about how, you know, we've got to get him out in part because we've got to get rid of this policy. Biden has been operating under this same policy for his past two years of being president of the United States, only now because of this court decision is he now having to get rid of it in what was the next five weeks or so. It's, it's, the politics well, of this are all over the, the place. The incredible continuity uh, in the immigration policies is something I, I think we've noted before, that the, uh, the very spontaneous, momentary outrage about the treatment of asylum seekers, of kids that have come over the border during the Trump administration, and then we learned that a lot of those facilities and even, even some of the pictures were from when the Obama, Obama was president. Yep. Uh, I, my understanding is very some, some things were changed, uh, but, but it was not... It was not specifically like a Trump kind of thing. It was just the way the federal government has generally treated these people, which you can think is wrong. I do think it was wrong. Yeah. But I mean, it, it really, it, it was the, made into a, yeah. because of Trump's rhetoric, uniquely malicious. Yes, which, which again, which raises questions about whether or not there will be more substantive justice under a DeSantis mm -hmm. versus a Trump. Since you got to give it to Trump, he knows how to say things in a way that gets people actually in the streets and agitating for change, even if those aren't the changes that you or anybody mm -hmm. in particular believes in, people pay attention when Trump is doing the bad thing and the way they don't pay attention when more moderate Republicans or centrist Democrats mm -hmm. do the bad thing. It's interesting how much there has been a kind of switching policy switch on this issue. You heard how Chuck Schumer was justifying in that clip, um, mm -hmm. legalizing the immigrants here, inviting more because we don't have enough workers. We need more, we need more workers. We need more people to to contribute to the economy in that way that's something you know two or three decades ago republicans would have said mm -hmm. and, and democrats who are more protectionist and more had the had the the, the working class the blue collars uh union people etc who don't want to compete with that labor were more inclined to say well what about taking american jobs now that the sorting has occurred and and Increasingly, those voices are within the Republican Party. The Democratic Party is more a party of, of uh, the managerial elite. So they want more workers. They want more immigrants. The Republican Party is now the voice of the, well, what about the American worker, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. and so forth. Well, it's worth doing a, a bigger segment because I, I both think that Democrats are too blasé about the reality of the effects of immigration on the lowest tranche of American worker, the most vulnerable American worker, at the same time that I think Republicans often overstate that impact just based on the states. It's real, it's, but it's also overstated. And I do think there's a way you should be able to talk about immigration from a humanitarian perspective that focuses on mm -hmm. these asylum claims, which are legitimate, and people who are asylum seekers seeking, you know, fleeing political persecution, et cetera, are being turned away in part because of these ridiculous COVID-era policies. But additionally, there needs to be a more robust conversation about what American foreign policy is doing that's often at the root of why so many countries are in turmoil and causing such an immigration crisis. There's also a lot of climate um, migrants that we're going to see increasingly over time. So 
Yeah, yeah I, I think that everyone's kind of talking past each other. You're right. There's like this weird ideological consistency and slippage between parties where no one's really offering a lot in the way of affirmative solutions. And, and, and you're right that you, know, you feel the pain of the American worker. I, I think it's, fi it's smart to talk about policies to help absorb some of the, 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 sh the shocks that immigration will create. At the same time, you know, I would have said Democrats, you know, 30 years were not being realistic about this, and now Republicans to some degree are not being realistic about this either, that you can't, you know, you can't just, like, pause the kind of, like, technological and work progress. Uh, to, to help, to, you know, to protect industries that are not able to compete and survive because we have a better labor, labor pool, that that's going to, like, that would, that would hurt the economy. That's going to raise, we're concerned about prices going up. I mean, that if you create deliberate inefficiencies because you want to protect certain jobs that are being outcompeted, like, that's just not a long-term way to run a country. So if you want to protect worker, you need, you know, you need to come up with things like a universal basic income or some kind, of, some kind of, some kind of, uh, uh, economic uh, protect that's rather than protecting the job is protecting the person or giving yes. the person some and way to get by. And also investing in like industries that actually have to be done in the United States of America. You mentioned price increases. Some of the price increases are the consequence of these supply chain issues, where we simply cannot get goods. Still, in some cases, I'm just getting a sofa delivered that I ordered eight months ago. Couldn't get get supplies delivered because all of our manufacturing happens overseas. And moreover, a lot of the storage facilities that we used to keep in America, um, people decided it was too expensive to keep, pay the rent on those kinds of things. So this meant that we had a backlog of essential goods. Companies decided it was worth it to get rid of those facilities to earn pennies on the dollar. We saw something like this happen in the medical context with monkeypox, where there was a decision made not to pay to keep the, the monkeypox vaccine stores going. And so we ended up with a deficiency earlier in a, in a, in a, in a disease cycle that could have really blown up mm -hmm. in a terrible way. Yeah, that's a good, good point of that. We haven't talked about monkeypox in a while. I wonder how that's going. Maybe we should get a reporter back on yeah. to check in on that. Follow up, yeah. All right, we'll have more Rising right after this. Stay with us. Israel reportedly will not cooperate with the FBI inquiry into the killing of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akhla. Israel's defense minister, Benny Gantz, denounced the inquiry as, quote, interference in Israel's internal affairs and said he made it clear to the American representatives that the country stands behind the IDF soldiers. Israel has acknowledged that the journalist was probably killed by Israeli fire, but denied allegations that a soldier targeted her. According to The Guardian, Abu Akhla's family applauded the U.S. decision, saying in a statement, this is an important step. The statement noted that the family had been asking for a U.S. probe since the beginning. Mm. Okay. I, we should foreground this conversation by pointing out that the U.S. gives an enormous amount of aid to Israel every year. This is an interesting conversation because I, I have some my own hesitations about the idea of kind of forcing the government to, you know, let the FBI participate in its investigations. I mean, you know, yeah. in, a, in, a normal, in a normal context. However, remember the timeline of reporting and admissions from the Israeli government over the story. First, there was the allegation that she was killed by Palestinians when there was no ability for them to substantiate that claim. And no, like no evidence for it whatsoever. They have now made this acknowledgement that we read at the top that she was probably killed by Israeli soldiers. I don't really know where the uncertainty comes in with the probably at this point, especially when at this, as we've as we're reporting on now, 
they are not allowing the U.S. to participate in the investigation. Uh, Israel first said that five shots were fired from this elite um, elite group of uh, Israeli soldiers that was the presumed origin of these shots. A time, New York Times investigation showed that 16 shots were fired from that location of the Israeli convoy, and on and on and on. The evidence is already so damning for the Israeli military that to now be taking this position is tantamount to an admission of guilt to some people. And as you note, we give aid to right. Israel. But they feel totally justified in saying, no, we're not going to participate in your investigation. Wouldn't it be incredible if we gave money to countries with some expectation that that gave us power to influence the decisions they make? Oh. That it was not just a blank check, and if they yeah. give us the finger, <laughs> we just give them more money? Yeah, I mean, look. Incredible. I mean, this is, not even a, this is not even a Democratic Republican issue. There are plenty of Republicans who think we give too much money, not just to Israel, but every other country and that doesn't in fact this is something donald trump talked about and was very popular uh, among the republican base uh complaining that um yeah, we're the laughing stock of the rest of the world that they don't uh they don't you know for, for all this uh, for all the mainstream media fretting that you know we're, we're an embarrassing country with donald trump at our helm no one respects him etc well they don't they don't respect us anyway they they take our money and then and then do whatever they want yeah I mean, yeah, and I think your point about military aid is really important. I mean, we not only give a ton of aid to Israel, it's been escalating over the years. I think um, the, the amount pledged in this most recent package, which is over like a 10-year period, I think it's approximating about uh, $40 billion. Mm -hmm. You know, and the bare minimum is can you acknowledge, well, first of all, can you not kill journalists? But if... It happens. Can you at the very least acknowledge it so that some accountability can happen and her family can have that outcome? Mm -hmm. This this seems like kind of cruelty on top of a tragedy. And I and I think it's, these kind of behaviors are part of what is influencing the shift in American public opinion about what's going on in Israel. No, I mean, an investigation could also. I mean, it, it could. It, it seems like it might. One of the in, outcomes. In theory, it could would, clear. Well, the idea. right, would show that this was not a targeted uh, murder. Right, which is why this feels like it's tantamount to an admission to some well, people. Well, I don't know about that. I, well, I don't know. No, right, I see why it feels that way to people. It, it could just be the kind of shiftiness of governments and law enforcement everywhere yeah. not wanting to have any kind of explanation or accountability. But yeah, it seems short sighted in that regard because I suspect it would find that it was not a targeted killing. I don't yeah. know, but. We, we, We'll, we'll, we'll do our investigation. Right. Well, Texas Senator Ted Cruz, however, weighed in on the matter, tweeting the Biden administration's favorite play, sicking the FBI on their political opponents. This time they're using the FBI to undermine our Israeli allies. Writer of Foreign Exchange Newsletter on Substack, Derek Davison, tweeted in response, if the context were literally anything other than what it is, Ted here would be absolutely torching the Biden administration for waiting months to open an investigation into the possible deliberate murder of a U.S. citizen by a foreign military. Which rings true to me. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> There's no way around it. Yeah. And, and honestly, I mean, after now you, we... you can't, right, you can't, you could say that, you know, we don't like interfering in other, the U.S. government interfering in other countries in general, but again, we're giving them all this money. I would not do that. I would, in many of these contexts, not just, it's not selective to Israel, don't mistake me, it's in general. We are giving too much money for no reason. It doesn't seem like it serves our interest. It 
we're spending too much money anyway. It contributes to inflation. Yeah, and, and this, I think this is what the Ukraine-Russia uh, situation has really foregrounded. It's not that there aren't sometimes, oftentimes, good reasons, humanitarian reasons, morally justifiable reasons to want to support various peoples, communities, countries, nations across the world. But when you look at the choices that are being made by Americans and the inconsistency in the positions that are taken by American politicians, like Ted Cruz, who, as you said, in any other context would be wanting to start World War III over the idea that some foreign state had killed an American citizen, except when it's Israel, except when it's a Palestinian journalist, except, 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 it makes people want to give up on the entire enterprise of America doing anything. And it, and it, it concretizes people's belief in isolationism. It's not entirely clear to me that that's a wrong instinct. Mm -hmm. I just want to point out again, Rand Paul, uh, a year ago, he objected to the $1 billion spending for the Iron Dome, the missile defense system that we were going to do. So it's a, it's, there are, there's Republican and all the And all the progressives bent the knee. Yep. And th that, was the, that was the issue that made um, AOC cry on the House floor after getting a talking to by um, Nancy Pelosi, who may continue to be speaker her once for... In future, her once and future queen. <laughs> oh, God. All right. We'll have more rising for you right after this. Podcaster Joe Rogan is calling out the media for apparent hypocrisy on Kyrie Irving's suspension from the NBA. Let's watch. Kyrie posted a link in his story to a video, and this is why he's getting in trouble. But isn't that video for sale on Amazon? Yeah, no, uh, somebody said that. It's an excellent point. That's the craziest yeah. thing yeah, ever. It's an excellent Kyrie point. is getting in trouble, and Amazon's not? Yeah. Like what? You you want all this well, from him because is, he watched a video and he sent a link to it that you're selling. Yeah. 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 It's it's that's uh, wild. I this speaks to the thing we were talking about earlier, which is it used to be Amazon considers disclaimer to anti-Semitic film. Oh, good for them. Uh, nice. The film Hebrews to Negroes, Wake Up Black America, which critics say peddles a garden variety of offensive anti-Semitic tropes, is still available for purchase on Amazon Prime Video as of this recording. Hmm, lots to unpack here. Sure. So uh, we were educating ourselves on what exactly Kyrie Irving has said that might be construed as anti-Semitic. He has said a number of, of kooky things over the years. Sure, he's a flat earther. <laughs> flat flat eartherism took over parts of the community a while back. And uh, that, co the thing. COVID vaccines are a plot yeah. by Satan. I don't know if they're a plot by Satan. Maybe a plot, but <laughs> Satan, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and then he, he shared a link to this film. Uh, that is a black Hebrew Israelites. These are the people who um, who had that confrontation on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial with uh, the Covington kids mm. all those years ago. So I, I, had, I had learned more about their interesting thinking um, for covering of that. Anyway, Kyrie Irving was kind of called in a press conference to denounce um, the film and, and I think did say that he found parts of it unfortunate or conceded the parts of it were unfortunate, but did not full-throatedly say he was not anti-Semitic with, uh, with, with the force that the questioners wanted. So he's, he's been suspended, you know, losing however much, tons of money, I presume. Joe Rogan points out, well, this video, though, is still available on Amazon, which I'm not actually sure is as much of the of an indictment that Joe Rogan is saying, because Joe Rogan's a big free speech guy. Yeah. So isn't, shouldn't, shouldn't it be available? Like, what if we're taking, and in fact, 
I have criticized, and probably Rogan has criticized, maybe you've criticized, Amazon for taking down other things in the past. I know there was a book kind of critical of, of transgender activist movement that's a TERF or whatever you want to call it book, Abigail, Abigail Schreer. So I shouldn't have used TERF is like the derogatory. The other side would accuse them of, you know what I mean. Yeah. That book was taken down. Um, there was, a, there was an, another anti-trans book by a heritage scholar when Harry became Sally that was taken out of the Amazon store. See mm -hmm. your eyes rolling. Um, I, I remember having trouble finding uh, either, it was either a Clarence Thomas or a Thomas Sowell, or maybe both, a documentary that was positive of them that was taken down from Amazon. And, I, was, and I, I just tried to reach out to them. Maybe this is a copyright violation. Maybe there's some totally legitimate reason to take it down. They would not explain why. Yeah, so, I, I think the Amazon sells it is not the slam dunk they think they are, because there's all kinds of things that Amazon should sell, like, you know, Mein Kampf. You can, you can sell a book that Hitler wrote. If people are using it as a primary source, that's the whole point. Right. You know, you got to be able to, if I'm, if I'm citing Mein Kampf to talk about something that happened historically, something that I don't approve of, it's a very different thing for me just blasting out to social media, like, read this great book. There's some choice ideas in here, yeah. right? And so the question becomes, yeah. what was the context of Kyrie's tweets? What do we, uh, of having tweeted out the link? Because it was just the link without any other yes. characterization. And what do we know from other things that he said that might give us some insight into what parts of that movie that he liked? There's apparently Holocaust denialism in the movie. There are some um, laudatory things said about Hitler in the movie, apparently. You know, if, if he supports those kinds of statements, Obviously, that's anti-Semitic, and this should be a slam dunk case, no pun intended. And I uh, appreciate what the NBA would have questions about wanting to, to be representing the, the agency and all the endorsement deals and those kinds of things. If he tweeted it out for other kinds of reasons, it might be in very poor form, uh, and he should disavow those parts that are problematic. But it, it, is, it is a little... I don't know. When you watch the press conferences and the dancing they're doing around each other, it is very evocative of what just went down with um, Kanye West, mm -hmm. where it seemed, I don't know if you watched that very lengthy Pierce Morgan interview that he did, but it seemed like at a certain point it was like a Chinese finger trap. And the more people pulled, the more he didn't want to give in, even though he knew what people wanted from him. He felt like making that kind of concession was kind of giving up his power to demand attention and space in the room. And by the end of the interview, he finally apologizes to Pierce, to Pierce Morgan, and the interview ends. Just as kind of like, I don't want the conversation to end. I still want to talk about all of the exploitation that I'm experiencing in the industry. He, but okay, fine, I'll apologize. And Pierce is like, okay, well, I guess that wraps up this conversation. And Kanye's like, wait, no, you literally, I literally just said I didn't want to yeah. give in for exactly this reason. And I can't, you know, I don't want to like try to put, to sugarcoat what uh, Kyrie is doing or what is motivating him since I obviously don't know. And obviously this seems to be a very ugly and anti-Semitic film. But there is, I, I understand reading a lot of the response from some parts of the black community, but there does seem to be a sense that Kyrie is being put through paces that other people aren't being put through. The standards that he's being held to are not the standards that other people are being held to. And that this has the, has the smell of, um, what's the famous case where you ask a politician, you know, what, you know, why do you beat your why wife? Why do you beat your wife? Yeah. And unless there is more that I am not aware of, which might be the case, that Kyrie has said that gives some indication that he is anti-Semitic, then this, I can understand wanting to resist answering that question in the first instance. Well, and frankly, I mean, there's no question, do we, do we care if our basketball players have kooky views? Everyone has okay, to have Okay, anti-Semitism perfectly... isn't a kooky view, though, Robbie. It is a, it's a, it is a kooky view. I, it's, it's a little bit more than a, a danger a to Jewish people. 
I think it's a little bit more than a kooky view. And if, you, if you're Adidas <laughs> in the Kanye case, or if you're in the NBA and you want to be able to say this is a wholesome league, you have people having to cover up tattoos and do all kinds of things. I don't personally agree with that, but it wouldn't be completely out of character and it wouldn't feel like there was a vendetta well, no, no. out Everyone can do whatever Kyrie. they want, right? Advertisers don't have to. They can disassociate from whoever they want. Look at Twitter. People, you know, people of... Uh, of in prominent public positions in public life, reap what they sow and face consequences for saying things people find distasteful. That's fine. With and Kanye is, I probably, I think, I would say even more so than Kyrie Irving is in a kind of expressive category. It's uh, music being more sort of expressing of one's views than uh, sports in, to some degree. Uh, but you know, I said it with same thing with Kanye that like I think you can like or dislike his music independent of whether you find him an objectionable person or that someone who has some very extremely objectionable views, which he clearly does have. Kyrie Irving similarly seems to have, uh, it not just on this, but given all the, all right, the all Ken- crazy things, he, like truly crazy, disturbed Alex Jones type things he said over the Right, and he is a fan fine. of Alex Jones. He is, but I, I guess I don't, I don't but, care but, that much. But this is the question. Does Kanye... Kanye can say what he wants, fine. Yeah. He loses his yeah. deals, fine. Is he able to actually produce and disseminate music if the people yeah. who facilitate that process don't want to work with him anymore? And at what point does that become, hey, that's that's on you, you made choices, and how much, at what point does that become, there's certain institutional supports that everyone should have access to regardless of your viewpoint. And that's why some people thought that when JP Morgan shut down Kanye West's account, that seemed to cross a line into, well, are we saying that you're not allowed to bank? Are you not allowed to use public transportation? Are you not allowed to go to the park if you hold certain views? And what does that mean for how we're structuring our society? We've got to give everybody a questionnaire make before they play yeah. basketball, find out if they have well, any look, impartial views. I, I, I mean, okay, this, this stuff is over the, the line. There's a gap between the stuff and the yeah. NBA stuff. And, and I guess there's stuff. a gap between this crazy and just maybe it was just a couple things. If it was just, I don't know. But it's... I don't know, this kind of, we have to police everybody, make sure everybody's perfect and doesn't right, think but, everything crazy. No, but don't doesn't, minimize, don't doesn't collapse. De- doesn't, it doesn't devolve to our benefit. Having a, a, a lurid tattoo that the NBA wants you to cover up is not the same thing as espousing anti-Semitic views. Mm-hmm. And I, I just want to be clear about that. Like, it is, it is completely possible that Kyrie Irving is anti-Semitic and that these claims are well-founded. Again, I, I don't know as much about this as I could, and I have not watched this film. But, like... The problem is people not getting into the details and the people who are making these charges of him not making clear what they actually want from him and what the public standard is for, let's say, participating in the NBA is causing some folks to feel like this is a lynch mob, like this is a targeted attack that has more to do about his assertions of, uh, he made a lot of statements about his value as a black American and feeling like his own history is valued. And that is why a lot of people, I think, are defending him right now because they see this as and Kanye, this is similar, an attack on a kind of affirmative, proud black identity um, as right. opposed to trying to root out anti-Semitism in a sincere way. Yeah. I mean, I simultaneously think people should stop saying totally crazy things <laughs> and then feeling a little sorry for them when, you know, all their success and their life is ripped away from them because they did it. I don't know. Yeah. Well, we can at least agree on the fact that the earth is round. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're opening a whole can of worms here. You're big, big earth, big round. You're pushing, uh, you're pushing big globe over here. I'm a big glober. Have you ever seen the Mercator projection? Like Greenland is most of, is most of earth. A a globalist even. (laughs) All right. That's all for this segment. We'll have a rising for you after this. 
So here's a story that I edited for Reason Magazine uh, yesterday that really went viral on social media because it's outrageous, and I wanted to talk about it here on Rising a little bit. So this is the story of a mother in Waco, Texas, who has a really, really horrible experience that she had that I know a lot of parents have had over this uh, giving your kids like even a little bit of independence, even a little bit of, of alone time. So she was driving back from um, from uh, uh, a karate practice or something like that uh, with her kids. And the, the eight-year-old, he was almost nine, was like really hyper at the moment. So they were half a mile from their home in suburban Waco, like very safe suburbs. She said, get out of the car. You're walking the rest of the way home. By the time she got home, the cops had picked him up because a, a neighbor saw this poor abandoned child or something. So the cops are like, you know, did you know this is a crime that you can't let your kid, like, walk home? And she was like, what? <laughs> no, What's I didn't know that was a crime. Uh, so she was arrested and charged with child endangerment. So they closed. So CPS opened an investigation, child services. She, for two weeks, so, oh, so they booked her, by the way. They took her to the station. She was booked. She was handcuffed, et cetera. Then there's the child services investigation. So the, the, her and her husband, they had to have their, their parents, their, their mothers, the grandmothers, the kids, had to alternate staying with them because the kids aren't allowed to be alone with them anymore. Because Texas has this great law that my colleague who wrote this story, Lenore Skenazy, she's a writer for us, and she does a lot of activism on behalf of childhood independence. She helped, and she has a nonprofit that helps states write and pass these laws to make sure that it's not a crime to let your kid walk home, mm -hmm. which is something we all did as kids. Our parents and grandparents did. It's nice, normal tradition. Um, the child services investigation closed after two weeks. They're so like, yes, this doesn't actually violate any. You haven't put the children in danger. But criminally, it still proceeded. And she had to plead guilty to, you know, you can't risk going to trial ever. So she pled guilty. She had to do community service. And uh, she had to do community service at a school, but on the weekends, because she's a threat to children. Oh, my God. Uh, and now, and <laughs> she's in, so, so it's fine. She didn't lose the kids. She's not didn't have to go to jail, but she's on like a list of like people who are threats to children. So she had to, she lost her job. Oh my god! She works at like a pediatric. Uh, oh my so, goodness! So she can't work there anymore. So she now she's trying to hire a lawyer to get off this list of like threats to children. It's just it's incredible. Oh Isn't my that insane? goodness! Yeah, it is insane, but like. Not actually. It's like, in so far, it's, it's it happens. common. It's very common. It's this very was a white family, uh, but low-income and black families are harassed by child all services the time. routinely. My colleague Lenore has covered so many of those things. Yeah, um, I mean, there were stories about people leaving their kid in the car for like five minutes when they yeah. run into the grocery store for a bag of flour yeah. or whatever. Um, there have been other stories about kids walking home. You know, and, and the, the problem is, you know, there are oftentimes situations that I think a lot of us wouldn't necessarily find to be ideal, you know, where we would love to be able to have child caregivers and things like that. But we live in a country that simultaneously wants to criminalize parents who are struggling to find care for their kids mm -hmm. at the same time that there's nothing offered in the way of social supports and safety nets. And especially given how low minimum wage jobs pay, 
oftentimes people have to make the decision whether or not it's actually advantageous for them to pay for childcare at the same time that they have work. And so you have all of these ad hoc childcare situations that spring mm -hmm. up, some of which are fine, some of which aren't necessarily in the best interest of the child. But the country, in my belief, can't go around criminalizing behavior when it isn't able to acknowledge that some behavior is only engaged in because there's a real need that isn't being met. And it's important to recognize how unnatural it is to this idea that children have to be supervised at all times. It's, there's nothing historical about it. There's nothing, we didn't grow up like that. Our parents' generation didn't grow up like that. It was common to, yeah, right, you don't leave a two-year-old to wander through the street, but but uh, teens and preteens, they, they go to their friend's house, they go play at the park, they take a bike to school, they, you know, they wait, they might get home before their parents do. Like that is all natural and appropriate uh, given, you know, it's, it's specific to each child and their emotional maturity and how trustworthy they are. But those are decisions that we rightfully leave to the parents. We don't bring the state in it. And that's, and how are you making these families better off? Like this woman complained she had to, so during this period, she had to keep showing up for drug testing. Mm. So she had to leave her kids alone while she was doing that because <laughs> she had to leave. Yeah. And look, it's worth noting that there are some parallels here between this kind of state involvement and some of the other cases we've been talking about this week with respect to some of these trans, trans, uh, anti-trans laws that would criminalize mm. parents for making the choice to make uh, uh, gender affirming care available to their kids the broad category that that is, you know, you have to ask your question, the question, how do you want the state, the state policing this? What kind of inspections do you want this, the state doing? Do you want the state inspecting kids, having them strip searched, inspecting yeah. their genitals, coming into the household and being very evasive? So whatever you feel personally about what choice you would make as a parent, and it goes both ways. You can't be sitting here saying, I don't want teachers telling my kid about the 1619 project at the same time that you want the state going into other people's houses and telling them what they should do with their gender nonconforming child. Absolutely, and I warn conservatives about that all the time. I, you know, I try to explain that I think at the, at the root of it, the state isn't really ideologically uh, uh, right-wing in the way that that uh, conservatism sometimes wish it would be, mm -hmm. which means you're going to, you know, what you want is some kind of enforcement of like non-CRT or non-whatever it is. But, you know, what you're going to get is these r really ridiculous kind of investigations, harassment of parents. What about, you know, Christian families being harassed or conservative families being harassed? If you, like if you introduce the state, you're actually opening yourself to, uh, to a lot of kind of parenting that you probably approve of as a conservative being, being called into question. In the schools, I see, you know, ridiculous kinds of investigation, weapons investigations that are, you know, the fake gun, the, you know, the famous chewing your Pop-Tart into the shape of a gun. Do you remember that one? Oh, yeah. yeah. I forgot the about zero that. All of those are people with yeah. um, uh, teens who have fishing equipment or yeah. hunting rifles or something yeah. in the car. For, leave them in the car, accidentally bring them onto school property. No one on earth thinks that's actually a threat or mm -hmm. that, you know, they should get anything other than, maybe like, detention or something, you mm -hmm. know. Not a, not a prosecution for bringing a deadly weapon onto a school. Mm -hmm. That's what happens under really militaristic mm -hmm. kind of zero tolerance policies for all these things. Yeah. So yeah. very cautionary tale about where you want state power. And child services, I've seen so many of these cases, not a friend to families, yeah. whether conservative or progressive, no, whether white or black. No, I heard a lot on the campaign trail so Bernie. It, people would come up to me and randomly bring up CPS as an, as an issue when it wasn't really an issue for any political campaign in any part, it's not a it's not it's a not core, a national issue. It is a, a local issue. issue. But it come it came up almost everywhere I went, particularly in black communities on the campaign trail. Yeah. So. I I would need like unequivocal evidence of or like witnessing of child abuse to dare call these people because mm. they make things worse so often. Well, great story, Robbie. Well reported, well edited. Thank you. More rising right after this. Stay with us.
It appears that Elon Musk's stint as CEO of Twitter may be short-lived while testifying in a Delaware court on Wednesday to defend the $56 billion pay package he received from Tesla in 2018. Elon Musk said that he expects to reduce his time at Twitter after, quote, the initial burst of activity needed post-acquisition to reorganize the company. That news broke just one day after an internal memo at Twitter was made public. According to the memo, employees were given until the end of business Thursday evening to commit to, quote, extremely hardcore work or leaving the company. Musk wrote that this would mean, quote, working long hours at high intensity. He then explained that Twitter will become much more engineering driven. So obviously he's going to remain the owner, but maybe install someone else as CEO, maybe uh but what he really needs to do less is just tweet less. So, so I don't know if giving him more free time on his hands would actually be healthy for the platform. I mean, what do you think this is about? Is it because he has created such a poor working environment and has ruined the relationship between him and his employees so much that he's not able to do the job? Because I saw him, he was tw uh, tweeting out pictures of him standing with two employees who he had fired prematurely and then rehired with his arms around them, kind of like, hey, I know I, I shouldn't admit to my mistakes. It seems like he's in a desperate situation where he's realized he actually needs somebody and the single genius uh, myth is just that, a myth, and he actually needs these employees to work for him. And the employees didn't look so happy in that photograph, I gotta say. Yeah, I don't know. They, they laid off a lot of people at Twitter, a lot of people. Now, I, I'm hearing from people in the, from tech insiders, you know, venture capitalist people, all of these companies actually have way too many employees. That rings true based on my kind of conversations with people at Twitter and Facebook and Google, et cetera. They employ so many people that are unnecessary. In what way? Um, it, it, that they don't do anything. That they're very because they they had they get these large you know evaluations and then they have to spend money to to ostensibly to grow and they just take on a lot of people. Whereas, but. You just need a, a, a much smaller number of core engineers could actually run the thing. That's well, what uh, that's what's that could be wrong, but that's what I hear. Yeah, I mean, we're having genuine engineering issues with Twitter because Elon Musk fired technical engineering staff. You know, the, the certain aspects of the program were working, like the alerts about the number of um, uh, notifications you got weren't showing up. There were all kinds of glitches across the program as a consequence of him. Yes, a, a, people have been tracking this. As a consequence yeah. of him not having retained the staff that's needed to run the platform. Yeah, so obviously he brought some people back. They let off too many people. I, I don't know. I, I, I wonder if, uh, it, it, right, the climate there seems like it might, must just be horrible. Yes, and um, how do you rebound from something like that? Yeah. But also, I mean, the mainstream media is rooting for um, not just Elon's favor, but uh, a failure, but the failure of all social media companies always because they have this kind of apocalyptic view of them. So you think that's I don't, true? There's yes, a love-hate relationship with Twitter where people, I think I people think are genuinely upset. Hate, mostly hate. People like Deborah the hell Messing. Site. They call, call it the hell site. But, but people like Deborah Messing are like, I'm going to leave Twitter. I hate Twitter because her livelihood doesn't depend on Twitter. I've One noticed right a back. shift in the, the tone of journalists and folks who are very online in the last week or so where there's this kind of bittersweet irony about it where it's like Twitter's never been better. Twitter's never been funnier. Everyone's really enjoying the platform because of all the, the jokes about Elon Musk, et cetera. And, I mean, and but does, that, does that show he's done something right well no it's it shows that he's become someone who is good for a twitter gag mm -hmm. however people are they tried to move to mastodon there's a lot of folks talking about how mastodon just does not serve the same 
purpose yeah. as Twitter. And people are sad. Like, if, if Twitter ends, people are going to be legitimately upset have, about it. Do we have any why? reason to believe it's going to end? I mean, for all this, for all the internal chaos going on, is it, are people actually leaving it on on mass is it's is it all well, i'm no, not we're not hearing any actual not reports people, of that but advertisers yeah. that's the issue elon musk's erratic behavior and his statements about loosening content moderation spooked advertisers and again this is not an ideological fight mcdonald's and sketcher shoes and you know, uh, J. Crew or whatever, they just want to be able to push their product on you and not be worried that there's going to be some like Nazi insignia underneath. That's perfectly legitimate. That's the way the TV and ads and stuff work. He lost a lot of money on advertisers. And so he's been tweeting, hey, Twitter uses up. It's never, that site has never been more popular. That's great. But if you can't monetize that, someone like Elon Musk who bought, who bought this as an investment is not going to want to keep the thing running as a loss the way that other kind of businesses sometimes, yeah, you just do it for the love of it. But this isn't, this, he doesn't seem like a Wikipedia sort of a guy. He seems yeah. like someone who well, wants we'll to see. make money. We'll see. We'll grow it, attract different advertisers, new advertisers. I think it's far too early to say this is yeah. like a doomed project sure. or something. Um, I, again, I'm enjoying my time on Twitter way more. Yeah, I hope way it's more. I love Twitter. Um, it had a, some kind of rules in place that were clearly bad or were, um, were nuking legitimate conversations and legitimate perspectives, and I'm Glad to see them fall by the wayside, and uh, you know they'll they'll. I, I have some faith they might work it out. Maybe they won't. Maybe it'll fail. Maybe it'll be gone. But uh, I think it's far too early to declare it dead. Um, I saw um, Hamilton no uh, Knowles. I think his name is uh, Nolan. No, Hamilton Nolan. Yeah, he had a sort of viral tweet about how the value of of Twitter and the reason why so many establishment journalists don't like it is because it elevates the opinions of ordinary people who are not credentialed, yeah. et cetera, and puts them side by side with those of the credentialed. And I think uh, Hamilton came up through kind of blogging culture. I think he worked in for, for Gawker for some years and he's a labor reporter. The labor implications of, of the, these letters and these public statements by Elon Musk are also something else we could get into. Well, but, I know he's being, oh, but, 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 but yeah. Ham Hamilton's point, I think, is really important because Elon has been characterizing some of the pushback that he's gotten as from elites. But honestly, there are a lot of journalists and people who are now in a position to have a big opinions on Twitter who are not credentialed, who did get blue checks because they've been on the website hustling for a long time, got a certain amount of notoriety, et cetera. And he's in some ways just fundamentally misunderstanding what his own website is all about. Uh, on the labor front, there was news from the New York Times this morning. Um, several former SpaceX employees say they were fired for an open letter critical of Elon Musk and they filed charges. With labor regulators, I don't know, if you write an open letter torching your boss, you're going to get fired, right? Oh, no, I thought it was the other way around. I thought it was that Elon Musk, Elon Musk has gotten in trouble for harassing people at Tesla, saying, saying things that were clearly in violation of labor law on Twitter, even before he owned it, that he had to apologize for and pay, pay money for. So, like, he, his lawyer should be telling him not to tweet. You can't tweet, I'm going to fire you unless you work um, you know, horrendous and horrendous work conditions. You know, I basically signed up for abuse or I'm going to fire you. You can't do that as a boss. And he has to realize that. He doesn't get to just be a Twitter guy anymore like the rest of us. He gave up that privilege when he decided to buy the platform. Mm. All right. Well, that's all we have for you today. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, like I do, we are available anywhere you listen to podcasts. All righty. See you later. Bye-bye.